0: Welcome back to the Sentientism Podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I talk to Peter Tatchell. Peter has been a fearless activist for human rights, democracy, LGBT plus freedom, and global justice since 1967. The Netflix documentary about his life, Hating Peter Tatchell, produced by Elton John and David Furnish and featuring Stephen Fry and Ian McKellen, is a truly compelling watch. He directs the human rights NGO, the Peter Tatchell Foundation. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 75 others. Don't forget to dip into that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every review, rating, or share uh, with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. Thank you. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or search for the word sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good afternoon, Peter. How are you?
1: I'm great, thank you.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much for making the time to join this series of Sentientist conversations. And we've talked about this a little bit before, but it's, I guess, a series of philosophical conversations about what I see as the two deepest philosophical questions what's real, what should we believe, and what matters and who matters. I have a particular perspective on how to answer those questions, hence the name of this series, because I base it on this very simple everyday philosophy called sentientism, which suggests that when it comes to thinking about what's real, we should take a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. And when it comes to What matters, we should think about sentience, the capacity for suffering or flourishing or having experiences is how we decide which uh, types of things and who we care about. But I'm talking in these conversations to people who agree or disagree. So it'll be fascinating to understand how you've come to answer those two questions and what their implications are for the future. But before we get onto those questions, for the rare people in my audience who don't know of your amazing body of work, how would you best introduce yourself?
1: Well, I am a human rights campaigner. I've been doing this work for 54 years. I first began at school at the age of 15, championing the rights of Indigenous Black Australians, campaigning against the death penalty in my home state of Victoria, Australia, and also fighting against Australia's involvement in the Vietnam War.
0: Great. And you continued for, as you say, 54 years urgent campaigning ever since on a massive variety of different issues um yeah i'm sort of best known
1: for my work on lgbt plus rights but all throughout the last five decades that has just been one strand of many strands of work that i've done a lot of it involving the defense of free speech civil liberties and the right to protest supporting uh, social justice movements here in britain and around the world, and also advocating for unrepresented and marginalised peoples whose national aspirations have been suppressed. People in Balochistan, the occupied, annexed province of Pakistan, and the people of West Papua who were taken over by Indonesia in the 1960s. So it's a very wide spectrum of
0: work. Yeah. And one of the reasons I was so fascinated to Uh, Get the chance to talk to you is because I think what I sense in your motivations and your underlying personal philosophy um, drives that dizzying diversity of work. But I I sense it has a core that I will resonate with the audience of these conversations as well. So that was why I was very interested to sort of dig a little little bit deeper into your personal philosophical journey and see if that's what underpins everything you do. Um, So I guess the first question we like to ask is, "What's real?" So for many of my guests. That's a story about whether they originally grew up in a more religious or a supernatural or a mystical sort of family and context, and what their own beliefs were, even at a very young age, and how that uh, perspective has shifted over time. And some people have stayed in a more supernatural religious context. Others have moved into, like me, into a more of an atheistic, humanistic, naturalistic way of thinking. But it'll be fascinating if you don't mind running the clock back and telling us how that side of your philosophy started out and how it shifted over time and and where you are now.
1: I grew up in Melbourne, Australia. I was born there in 1952, just a few years after the end of the Second World War. It was a period of very right-wing conservative government. My father was a lathe operator in an engineering factory. My mother did work in a bank, but she was sacked when she got married because back in those days, married women were not allowed to work in banks. Then she spent the rest of her time mostly as a housewife, although did occasional work in a local biscuit factory. Both my parents were deeply Christian, um, mm. evangelical Protestants, bordering on fundamentalists. For them, every word in the Bible was literally true, <laughs> even though yeah. it contained so many contradictions <laughs> and so many impossibilities. The idea that the Methuselah lived be nine hundred and sixty-nine years. It's a bit of a stretch. The parting of the Red Sea, the Virgin birth, the resurrection—all these things don't square with modern knowledge and science. But they were absolutely adamant that this was the word of God, and every single word of it was absolutely true,
0: incontrovertible fact. Yeah. And in your early days, did did you believe as well? Because you were presumably, you know, infused in this environment from birth. So in the very early days, did you absorb this and say, well, it must be true, my parents say it so, or?
1: Of course, as an impressionable child, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, you take what your parents say usually to be what is right. Yeah. And I had no other reference point. There was no other way of looking at the world. It wasn't until secondary school when I studied science that conflict began to develop and i began to question or at least have some doubts about some aspects of christian teaching yeah plus also i don't quite know how but i began to develop what i suppose was i never heard of the term liberation theology but that was sort of that was evolving in my mouth my own mind at around about the age of 12 or 13. at the age of 11 I heard about the bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, in the United States, where four young girls about my own age were murdered by a white racists. And I was profoundly shocked by that, even though it was happening on the other side of the world. Yeah. I thought, how, how could anybody kill another human being, let alone four young girls in church on a Sunday morning? So that prompted my interest in and support for the black civil rights movement Led by Doctor Martin Luther King, mm. and of course, because he was a pastor, uh, a Baptist pastor, I could relate to him given my religious upbringing. And to me, he seemed to be putting Christianity into action, making real the teachings of Jesus Christ to love thy neighbor as thyself, uh, be a good Samaritan, be your brother and sister's keeper, and so on. Yeah. So those sort of early experiences led me both towards liberation theology but also towards questioning my parents' version of Christianity. I hadn't heard of Epicurus until many years later, but I can remember thinking at the age of, you know, probably 13 or 14, if God is omnipotent, (laughs) why does evil happen? Why do earthquakes and devastating floods happen? Because God is supposed to be all-powerful and he could prevent it. And, you know, (laughs) if God is both willing and able to prevent great evil, how come evil exists? Surely then God is evil himself. So all these kind of ideas were circulating in my own mind from around the age of uh, 13 or 14. Mm. But then nevertheless, I, I still class myself as a Christian, albeit a Christian with a liberation type theology. Yeah. And even up until the age of 16, I was a Sunday school teacher. At my local Baptist Church, and was very much appreciated and applauded by the kids I was very artistic and so I used to make very beautiful little biblical tableaus, making little paper figures and scenery and so on, and that was a cut above what most other Sunday school teachers did, so I was very, very popular,
0: yeah, yeah, and it's interesting because you mentioned the science lessons were one trigger for you starting to question things and thinking about I guess the evidence and reason and are these stories coherent, and is there a fact base behind it? And I guess you weren't satisfied. But there was also a sort of ethical drive that at least led you to challenge the more conservative versions of Christianity as well. And that, those two themes have been very common in many of them, I guess, and in my own journey too. Sometimes it's the sort of evidence, reason, facts, and logic stuff, and sometimes it's more, hold on, there's an ethical system that comes bundled with these supernatural views that I you know, just don't think are correct or right or don't sit with me. But for some people, they can put the sort of science, evidence, and reason stuff to one side, maybe compartmentalize it, adapt the ethics into a more sort of progressive liberal version of Christianity, as I guess you did when you were 15, 16 with the liberation. And then they'll stick with that. So they'll maintain some sort of more modern liberal version of Christianity. What? And you haven't done that. I think you described yourself as an atheist and as a humanist. What was the next stage in the journey of, I guess, away from Christ, even the more liberal version of Christianity you had at 16?
1: I should add that when my stepfather discovered that science lessons were teaching evolution, which he said was satanic, a satanic theory, he tried to stop me from doing science. Wow. And I can remember when I questioned him once and tried to explain why evolution suggested that humans and other species had evolved over millions of years, he punched me in the face. That's what my stepfather was like, and that's just how fundamentalist he was. We used to it's have
0: incredible.
1: Bible readings after every meal. You say prayers or grace before eating, and then have prayers and Bible readings after eating as well. Certainly, main meals like evening meals uh, and at weekends. So it, it was a very, you know, suffocating sort of family. Very, very similar in many ways to the family described by Jeanette Winterson in her book *Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit*. A really pretty hardline, hardcore fundamentalist obviously for me learning about evolution and the the science the facts about carbon dating and showing that there were fossils going back millions of years and so on that further compounded my doubt in the biblical story that the earth was only about 5,000 years or 6,000 years old that was a further sort of nail in the coffin but nevertheless I I tried to put that to one side and say well, the basic you know Christian teachings about being good to each other and living a good life, living an ethical life, that those were still important. And that there were aspects of of biblical teaching, in particular, more the New Testament rather than the Old. Mm. I became very disenchanted with the Old Testament, you know, that portrayed God as a very harsh, cruel, vengeful person or character or being, which was completely in contrast with the, Kind, gentle, peaceful, loving, compassionate uh, Do Jesus in, in the New Testament. So I can remember one time one of my stepfather's Bible readings was St, Paul, St. Paul, or, yeah, St. Paul's Epistle to the Romans, and with a phrase about the, yeah, it's your duty the Christian duty to give unto Caesar what is due to Caesar or something like that. I think it actually says that more or less the governments that exist are ordained by God, or something like that. And I said to my father, does that mean that Adolf Hitler was ordained by God? <laughs> I got smacked around the face again. But there there was another yeah. example of me seeing that this story or these fables, these you know, recording recorded teachings were just really very contradictory and, and, and not consistent at all.
0: Yeah. One of the central challenges in your relationships with your own family was coming out and and then your role in the wider lgbtq community as well was there how did that challenge which you talked about very frankly and honestly in many places how did that relate to your move away from religion as well was that a compounding factor and an already difficult transition or was it something that was that your family was less aware of or perhaps add that
1: before I came out in 1967, when I was 15 years old, a prisoner who had escaped jail and allegedly shot dead at water during that escape was due to be executed under the existing death penalty in the state of Victoria, Australia. Now, I can remember reading a summary of the autopsy report in the local paper which you know said where the prison warder was standing when he was shot and where the prison escapee was standing when he allegedly fired the fatal shot. And I worked out that in terms of the physics, the bullet would have had to do a semi-U-turn in mid-air to have the trajectory through the warder's body that was described in the autopsy report. So I got involved in the campaign to try and stop his execution. My father absolutely, or my stepfather rather, Absolutely berated me, saying that the death penalty was entirely consistent with Christian teaching and that an evil murderer like that, particularly someone who killed a prison warder, should be hanged. And he he was really, he didn't strike me, but he was very aggressive and said that I should stop supporting this campaign. So there was another example where the conflict between what my stepfather was saying and what my understanding of Christianity was was in conflict. Yeah. I didn't realize I was gay until I was 17 in 1969. And at that time, in the state of Victoria, male homosexuality was still a serious criminal offense. You could be jailed for several years. In certain circumstances, you'd be required to undergo compulsory psychiatric treatment. So coming out was quite risky. Uh, And particularly when you had parents like mine. Not so much my mother. I mean, she was quite zealous, but she wasn't of the, the order of my stepfather. And I was genuinely afraid that if I came out, that they would turn me into the police. And when I soon afterwards met a guy and fell in love, I was afraid that he'd be turned into the police as well. So I did not come out to them for some years. And that was because I just thought it was just you know, too dangerous.
0: Yeah. Makes sense.
1: Too risky. My stepfather never accepted it. Maybe towards the end of his life, twenty or thirty years later, he did accept it, but initially not at all. My mother went through a great deal of anguish and pain for her, or for both of them. Homosexuality was terrible, mortal sin, almost on a par with murder and rape. It was one of the worst possible things you could do or be. But over time, she's come around. She's still to this day believes that homosexuality is a sin because it says so in the Old Testament. Mm. Although, as I point out, not in the New Testament, but she doesn't see it as a major sin since it's, if it's between the consenting adults. And yeah. to give her credit, she is broadly supportive of my work for LGBT plus human rights. She also thinks that discrimination and hatred of LGBT plus people is wrong. And she, you know, she's very supportive and friendly and accepting of of my partner so there has been a journey (laughs) by her and to some extent before he died some years ago uh, my stepfather
0: yeah thank you and would you describe where you've got to personally now on this what's real side as completely naturalistic do you think in a you know scientific way use evidence and reason to form your beliefs is that how you describe things now given your atheism and your humanism and are there some aspects of maybe something supernatural or mystical that still tempts you? Or uh...
1: I say, by my mid-teens, I, I totally rejected the Old Testament, yeah, as yeah. being full of contradictory, impossible, and very hateful, vengeful, yeah. evil thoughts. But there are some, you know, compassionate moments—the love story between David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi. Some other other good bits and pieces in there, but not much. Yeah, you have to look pretty um, hard. Yeah. So I was very much a New Testamentist. I was a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, and interpreting Jesus Christ as a sort of his message, as a a program for personal and social liberation. So very much as a liberation theology before, before I'd ever actually heard the term or the, the concept. But by the late teens, by the age of 19, Really, I, I basically abandoned Christianity completely. I just thought that the contradictions were too great, and the supernatural and irrationalism of it was just beyond what was reasonable and possible. Yeah. So I would say I became an atheist around about the age of twenty, and a humanist around the same time, believing that human reason and logic and you know evidence-based thinking was the best way to understand the world, that a a supernatural, irrational explanation based on historic ancient dogmas set in stone that was not compatible with modern thinking and indeed the way in which we can progress as
0: human beings. Yeah. And you've hinted at it already, I think, in the way you described becoming an atheist and also becoming a humanist at about the same time. Because in a way, I guess the atheist piece is just saying... It's more on the science and the evidence side It's saying, look, this doesn't stack up. I don't see the evidence and reason. And yes, surely the best way of understanding reality is to engage with it honestly. So that sort of makes sense on the, how do we understand and, how do we, and what do we believe? But one of the reasons that many people struggle to move away from a religious worldview is because it often comes bundled with a sort of ethics system as well. So sometimes people are left thinking, okay, I've got this new naturalistic way of thinking about the world uh, that helps me understand things in a better way. But have I lost my ethical moorings? What's right or wrong without a deity or a Quran or a Bible to to tell me or without the punishment or the reward of heaven and hell afterwards? So for some people that feels difficult because they feel, you know, set adrift and rootless in their ethics. Now you clearly don't feel that, but it's interesting. Did you find that a challenge? How quickly, if it was, how quickly did you resolve it? And how would you say your ethics and your morality are grounded now that you've turned away from the deity and the supernatural as a basis for ethics
1: i suppose studying science at school was one of the levers or motivators or things that propelled me towards a scientific Mm. rather than a religious understanding of the world and how it works and indeed how we can change it and improve it how we can you know develop new technologies and ideas that can uh, enhance and liberate Human life. Simultaneously, we had a religious education teacher, and uh, I can remember a particularly famous lesson where he said that when when you go, when it's dark and you go to a light switch, you flick the switch and you have faith that the electricity will turn on the light. And he said that's what religious faith is all about. It's the same kind of thing. I remember putting my hand up and saying, Well, no, sir, I don't have faith that the switch will happen to switch on the light by faith, that that faith has got nothing to do with it. I believe it will switch on light if it's working properly based on uh, the mechanics of the switch and the system of electricity installed. I don't think this RE teacher had ever been <laughs> challenged in that way. He was, was quite ashen-faced, ashen-faced and didn't really have an answer or an explanation. But anyway, so around this time, I would say that I still hold to some of the core values and principles of Christianity. Mm. Although, of course, they're not exclusive to Christianity and can be arrived at independently of Christianity. The idea of loving and caring for other people, being a good neighbor and a friend, supporting those in need, these come from a Christian tradition, but they also come from a humanist tradition and a tradition of human rights and ethics, which is completely independently separate. Yeah. religion. For me, I think what replaces the Bible and Christian teaching for me is, is, I suppose, something like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a human-made set of values and principles devised by living, feeling, thinking human beings from many different continents and cultures, which sets out the way in which we should treat each other and how government and law should operate. That seems to me to be a far better and more thorough, appropriate, and comprehensive way of looking at how we should behave and treat each
0: other. And and that sort of human rights approach, there there are so many different ways of thinking humanistically, if you like, about human ethics. You think about rights or virtues or non-religious rules, or there's lots of different approaches. But to me, they all seem to be grounded ultimately in a recognition that other human beings, they have their own experiences they can suffer, they can flourish, they can feel pain and pleasure, and that we should value those perspectives and respect them and do what we can to make things better for others. In a way, it's very simply about you know the fact that we should have concern for others and acting in a compassionate way on that context. So I think that's quite a, a common response. And, and while some people will, might say might challenge that, I think it's very firmly grounded in the scientific understanding of what we are as human beings and what our experiences are and in a very simple common sense way, you know, I don't like suffering, so I'm pretty sure you don't either. And morality is in a way my decision to care about that. So I'm quite comfortable with that type of naturalistic grounding in ethics. But there's a secondary question, because I think for for most people around the world, they would probably share our view to some extent. They would say, yes, I'd sign up for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. They would say, at least in concept, all other humans Should have moral consideration. We should care about them. And we know we don't do those things in practice. And much of your life's work has been spotting those problems and driving to try and hold us to those standards. But I think most of the people around the world, even many of the people that you're resisting, still do have compassion for others. Even some of the worst people on the planet still love their mothers. There is compassion there. But the problem is their compassion is restricted or constrained or conditional in some way. So that's another journey I'm really interested in understanding is how people set that scope of moral consideration. So for some people, they do that within the human species, and that can cause some of the awful discriminations that we see around us today, and that you've been working to resist within our own species. So I'm interested in your journey about how you started to get to that sort of recognition of the universal worth and value of all humans. But then there's a second stage, and the Clues in the name of sentientism for many people, where they also start to recognize, okay, humans aren't the only things that can suffer. Maybe we need to care about other types of sentient beings too, animals, maybe many of them. So I'm interested in how your journey on setting that moral scope developed over time too, both within the human species and also critically when you started to think about non humans seriously and non human ethics seriously and how that played out.
1: Before we go there, I just want to sort of row back a bit. I mentioned the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which was agreed in 1948. But of course, the antecedents of it stretch back centuries. You go back to Ashoka in India, you know, to, what, 2,000 years ago, two millennia ago, or Darius in Iran, or what is now Iran, developed embryonic ideas of, of human rights, of opposition to slavery, the right... Of people to have differing opinions or different belief systems. These are not Western rooted ideas. And as I mentioned, the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights was not a Western invention. It was a a collective invention or creation of people from all different cultures. We had the Indian delegate, the Libyan delegate, and others played a very important role in formulating uh, those rights and freedoms set out in that declaration. Yeah. And of course, since then, the concepts of human rights have evolved. We've, we've had the Genocide Convention uh, or, or the Convention Against Genocide, the Convention Against Torture, uh, the Geneva Conventions Against War Crimes, the Conventions the for the, the Rights child. of Women, the mm-hmm. Rights of Children. Yeah, absolutely. So, human rights and what it involves is evolving. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is expanding itself. And even today, there is no International Human Rights Convention that explicitly recognizes the rights of LGBT plus people or indeed the rights of disabled people. These were ideas of rights that evolved post the development of these major conventions. There are some subsequent conventions that do include disabled rights, but they're not in any of the major international conventions. And that, I think, shows that concepts of human rights and what we have as obligations to each other as human beings is in a process of evolution over time. Yeah. And I'm sure it will continue to develop as technologies evolve. They're going to be very big human rights considerations around our individual genetic inheritance. But to what extent should people be able to discriminate based on the fact that we may have a Genetic predisposition, not a determination, but a predisposition to certain illnesses, will insurers be able to slap on added premiums to people which have, you know, perhaps a genetic predisposition to certain forms of cancer or uh, heart disease, or so on. Uh, that's a big issue. And then, of course, artificial intelligence will bring bring a huge, big challenge a- as we get very sophisticated forms of artificial intelligence. Will those <laughs> forms of artificial intelligence will they have rights? I can yeah. remember when I was a student. Uh, I went. I left school at 16, but I eventually went, did my A levels at evening class, and went back to night school to complete. And then later went and did a degree as a mature student. The first person in my entire extended family to ever have higher education, and even to this day, the only person in my family to have ever had higher education. But anyway, uh, one of my dissertations was on the question, the moral ethical question of do cyborgs, that is human-like artificial intelligence, do they have rights? Do they have feelings? And, and these are still issues to be debated today. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, big, that's a new big challenge, a new frontier of rights. But going back to your Yeah, it's a fast your, developing your
0: question. It's a fast developing field. And just as a quicker side on that, in, in a way, this idea of sentientism includes that concept in its scope, because the suggestion is that we should infer sentience and assess sentience even in artificial entities. As whether or not we should grant rights to. But uh, yeah, that's an aside, really. I think the folks of most people who ascribe to sentientism are about the, the many billions of sentient beings that exist today. But I think it's really interesting to have a philosophy that is open-minded enough to acknowledge that things will change and there may be you know, artificial or maybe even alien forms of sentience in the future that yeah, we don't need to just worry about how they treat us. We need to think about how we might need to treat them. And I think you you put that really well because on the one hand, you were talking about the sort of if you like, the evolutionary roots of naturalistic thinking and humanistic thinking are very deep and various and predate Christianity and certainly predate, if you like, the Western Enlightenment. So they have deep and global roots that go very far back. And I'd argue even that there's a proto-morality even before humans existed, just out of it being evolutionarily adaptive to be able to cooperate in social species. So you know, I wouldn't necessarily say that's ethics. I'm not saying pre-human animals were codifying things in the way we do or crystallizing them, but they had kin relationships and reciprocity and tribal behaviors and the ability to behave altruistically and have a culture and you know, feel compassion for each other as well. So I think that's, a re- that's one important point is that the roots are really deep and various and global to these types of ethical uh, thought. But also, as you say, the, the story isn't finished yet. And in the same way, and it probably never will be, and in the same way as a naturalistic scientific approach, never ends, you're always open to new evidence, you're always reasoning, you're always thinking, you're always humble about where you are today. I think we need to apply that same approach to ethics. And yeah, you put that beautifully, right? The Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 I can, I can was can no, in, no way a perfect finished article.
1: I can just throw in you know, a bit further development. I mean, I concluded, <laughs> this is back in the mid 1970s when I wrote the dissertation, that cyborgs could not have genuine feelings They could mimic feelings they could project that they had feelings but because they were not organically based those feelings would be mechanical would be manufactured that if you punched a cyborg they would not actually feel pain they could mimic or react as if they felt pain but they wouldn't actually feel it because they were just machines yeah but of course (laughs) <laughs> now, with the further development of artificial intelligence and the evolution of cyborg, so it's, mechanics is too crude a word, but technology, maybe that—that that is that is called into question. Now, now I'm not so sure.
0: Yeah, okay. and I think the, one of the a, other things that's made me less sure on that front is just our deeper understanding of our own mind. When you understand chemical and electrical patterns and neurons firing, I mean, there's an almost mind-bendingly Rich complexity there, but it does seem at its root, it is really just an evolved class of information processing that you could maybe it's technically impossible, or maybe it will take centuries to achieve. But in principle, I don't see why there's necessarily a difference between the information processing that's going on in here and what could be going on in an advanced artificial intelligence. But uh, yeah, it's a fascinating space.
1: Well, uh, well, artificial intelligence will be more intelligent have greater capacity than the human mind. And already, the supercomputers can outmatch the human mind many times over. They can do complex equations in milliseconds that would take a human being days or weeks. We've already seen supercomputers defeating chess grandmasters. So we're already in that era of artificial intelligence that is beyond and superior to human intelligence, but again, at the end of the day, because it is all mechanically constructed, or it is not based on tissues and fibers and nerve endings, mm. the question is, could it ever be developed at such a stage where a supercomputer or a cyborg and a human-like robot could actually have feelings? So Those are still massive questions. And of course, if they have feelings, then do they have rights? And yeah, it is all very, very complex.
0: It's a fascinating space. But we've, and we've jumped, in a way, we've jumped from the human space into some of the interesting sci fi stuff. But I'm really interested in the non human animal as well, because I've been on a long and somewhat halting journey on that front. But in a way, it echoed some of uh, the steps you took, although in a very different context. And I became, you know, atheist. And then I was thinking, okay, that doesn't really help with a moral grounding. Here is humanism, which is, if you like, a naturalistic scientific approach, but then universal compassion for all humans. And then I came to see a problem with restricting compassion to humans in that non-humans suffer too. And so I'm interested in your journey on when it comes to animal ethics and animal rights, and when did that start to become something in your mind you thought was important? How has that influenced your life? How's that, that philosophical journey happened for you? Because that's another critical transition for many of my guests, going beyond the human into the animal world.
1: When I was nine, my parents moved out of the inner city to the far outer suburbs of Melbourne. We had a house built on an area which was semi-rural. It was a dirt road. (laughs) There was no sewage, no drainage. There was a farm opposite. There were lots of blocks of vacant land, some forested, some just grass and wild. My stepfather got us a cow. And my my role was to move the cow from area to area so it could get fresh grass every day and to take it water. But the cow was chained to a big gigantic heavy metal pole that so I had dug into the ground at either end a bit. So it was very difficult. The, the cow could drag it, but it, with great difficulty. So it basically stayed in the certain area. It had a very long chain, and me knowing no better, thought that was perfectly reasonable. It was a it, every day it got new fresh grass and got water. I bought up the water. I looked after the cow. That seemed reasonable. We also had a big chicken coop in the back garden. We had about a dozen chickens. And again, my task was to to feed and water the chickens and collect the eggs. And we made our own milk, butter and cream from the cow, our own eggs from the um, from the chickens. So I was living around animals and caring for them. But I never thought they had rights or that I knew they had feelings because, you know, if you if the cow, if I accidentally knocked it with something, it would obviously make a sharp movement and you know, bellow. Mm. So I knew it, had, it was like me. I got prodded. It would um, not be good. I, I remember discovering that the chain had worn into the skin around the the cow's horns because the chain was tied around the horns. And I remember saying to my stepfather, you know, "We have to, you have to, you have to do something about that. That's probably causing the a slight infection. The cow must be suffering pain." So I was quite concerned. Every now and then, my stepfather would kill a chicken to eat, put its head on a chopping block and chop chop its head off, and you know, blood spurting everywhere. I remember being really revolted by that and thinking, "You know, I don't mind taking the eggs, and the, the chickens are in a big pen; they have got lots of room to roam around. killing them—that's—I uh, don't like that idea." But then again, I I was still eating the meat that was served to me on the dinner table. There was a bit of contradiction between my concern for the animal's welfare and what I was actually doing. A very common Um, one. It wasn't really, I suppose, until the late 70s, early 80s that I began to think about animals having rights and that animal welfare was more than just about making sure animals had decent conditions you know for farm animals for example or being revolted by hens kept in you know battery cages and so then i began to reduce the amount of animal products i ate this is i uh, say about late 70s or early 80s but i didn't really stop eating meat until mad cow disease i think in 1987 that, that was the final straw i thought this is potentially you know and dangerous as well as being ethically and, and morally dubious or, or even wrong yeah so that, that's when i stopped eating meat and then began stop buying leather goods those kind of things so in principle i'd embraced the the idea of animal rights and animal liberation probably the mid-1980s mm. but i didn't actually implemented my own life until you know a few years later yeah yeah but it was based upon the core principle that other animals are sentient beings they have feelings they can differentiate differentiate between pleasure and pain and that just because we are more sophisticated intelligent superior beings doesn't give us the right to inflict suffering and i can remember writing a piece must have been about the mid 1980s a speculating superior civilization coming to earth and deciding that human beings were very nice tasty flesh <laughs> yeah. and that they would farm humans for alien consumption and quite clearly concluding we would not like that so therefore why should we do the same or similar to other animal species and of yeah. course, it was also based on our recognition that we humans are animals. You know, there, there's no great divide between us and other animals. We are part of the animal kingdom. We happen just to be a very intelligent and highly developed, evolved form of animal, and, but we're animals nonetheless. And that gives us a kindred or should give us a kindred attachment and consciousness about the feelings and rights of other animal species. I can remember thinking about a lot of people will find this really offensive, but I remember thinking, you know, a a, a factory farm where pigs or uh, chickens are all cooped up. It's akin to, you know, a concentration camp for animals. And I can also remember hearing a black person speak, drawing analogies between the kinds of shackling that was used for slaves to the kind of shackling that was used for animals in, in, in certain farms and mm. certain circumstances. So I began to make all these connections, you know, the parallels between human slavery and animal slavery. I know they're different, and not, not the same, but there, there are parallels and there are crossovers, and, you know, with concentration camps, the kind of extreme brutality and the mass annihilation of of species, which is, in some respects, analogous to what the Nazis did to Jews, people with mental and physical disabilities, and so on. That was that recognition was very shocking to me. Yeah, you know, and I, it was partly a shock that about the analogy or the similarity. And I emphasise there are differences. There, there are similarities as well, but also I was shocked that I hadn't realised that previously. <laughs> I, I, I I was shocked that it took me until my you know thirties to realise these kind of connections. Yeah. And, and even I think, though I regarded myself as trying to be an ethical, you know, yeah. responsible, kind, gentle human being.
0: Yeah. But I think when you're swimming in social norms that are so pervasive, it is really hard to break out. I mean, it's similar to, you know, the way you described your very early years at growing up in a religious context, right? You just this is just the way things are. And in a way, there's a very similar set of social norms that teach us almost from birth. That it's completely normal to farm animals for us, for our pleasure. It is remarkable how long it takes to, even though the facts I think are incontrovertible and crystal clear, and the ethical harms are egregious and obvious, it still takes so long for even thoughtful people to rise above or break out from those social norms, and, and certainly to apply the changes. And I, I had an embarrassingly long journey to this thing that I think was paced almost completely by social norms. So. I went vegetarian when I was maybe 22, 23. And it was almost as if I, I understood the ethical context. So I took a decision, but then I limited it based on what I thought I could get away with socially because vegetarianism felt weird, but not too weird. Whereas going vegan just felt at that point, you've really gone off the um, reservation in terms of what's acceptable socially. So it was only three or four years ago when I took that next step, partly by learning about you know, egg production and dairy production and what really goes on in. In those contexts, and as you said, you know, think about leather and other products and other industries and other forms of exploitation. when, you know, I, I took that next step, but it's amazing that you know, it takes most people decades, even when the facts are very clear. So it maybe it's self-serving because these are two of my personal hobby horses, but it seems like the social norm setting around the supernatural world, the, the social norm setting around the way we treat non-human animals, both are pervasive, powerful, and hard to break from, even though the rationale is clear
1: yeah absolutely going back i can remember probably the age of 10 or 11 or 12 thinking that circuses were very cruel you know if, you know i yeah. remember seeing a circus with a, a a lion in a trailer and the trailer was probably only about two body lengths long and about maybe three or four body lengths wide thinking this poor animal apart from when it goes out in the ring briefly to perform tricks that it's been taught and yeah, it's cooped up in this little tiny trailer and the same with zoos i i remember seeing going to the zoo and seeing big game you know, elephants giraffe lions tigers all cooped up in they weren't, weren't like the small as the circus trailer but they were still very small enclosures yeah and not their natural habitat it was all concrete everywhere completely unnatural and just thinking well in the wild these animals that roam over hundreds of miles they're not in a in some of these animals that i saw very they young they're in a cage by themselves not even with one other mate and of course these animals in in the wild are, are, are social with families and i can remember thinking at that early age just how wrong zoos and circuses were it wasn't really until of the aids pandemic obviously I was, I was really against some of the more extreme examples of animal abuse in scientific laboratories like making beagles i forced them to smoke cigarettes test cigarettes yeah those kind of things mm-hmm. that, that was from early age that was totally and utterly totally wrong that was you know i just imagined how they were suffering i remember sometimes over a barbecue or i've been sometimes in places in australia where there have been bushfires and they've been lots to smoke and just how bad my lungs felt but then thinking about these beagles being forced to imbibe this cigarette smoke, yes, non-stop day after day, must be doing to their lungs and their whole bodies. But it wasn't until the AIDS pandemic that I began to think about it much more seriously. And that was motivated by the fact that a lot of early AIDS research was with dogs, cats, chimpanzees, and macaque monkeys. Mm. And I can remember thinking the theory behind this is that animals provide a model of how this disease will impact humans and by researching how animals cope with hiv we can find a cure for hiv in humans but then of course i had been aware that there was you know a lot of already some quite a lot of evidence that suggested that humans animals do not respond to disease in the same way and that drugs that might work in animals don't work in humans perhaps even could be fatal to humans and vice versa i was very much aware of the mind scandal mm. where the drug had been tested on animals and being given a green light and then of course was used by women and produced a terrible genital a genetic birth defect you know lots of others lots of other diseases so i began doing some research and looked at simian uh, immune deficiency virus and human immune deficiency virus, HIV. And obviously there are some similarities, but I became very worried that a lot of, a lot of the research money was going into animal-based studies and not in human-based studies. And I began to get very worried that the animal-based studies would come up with results that would not be applicable to humans. Yeah. So, The big knockout killer moment was when I discovered that pharmaceutical company Merck had done experimentation on a new protease inhibitor in the late 80s that had developed to block HIV. They had done the research, I think, in dogs and rats, and they all died. So Merck scrapped that protease inhibitor. They didn't advance it to human trials. And I can remember thinking maybe that protease inhibitor did kill. Well, it certainly did kill the dogs and rats, but maybe it might have worked in humans. And so what happened was, I think it was another four years before they developed another protease inhibitor that did work in other animal species and also in humans. But in the meantime, tens of thousands of people died. And even to this day, I wonder, had that original protease inhibitor developed in the late 1980s, (laughs) maybe that would have worked. In humans and save tens of thousands of lives. So that sort of reinforced my view that making the equivalence between human and animal research just is not sound science. So I worked with people for the ethical treatment of animals to try and challenge scientific research into AIDS and HIV using animal models and argued that research should go into a human based research. And already at the time, I'd been a supporter of the Dr. Hadwin Trust for Humane Research, which promoted scientific research using non-animal models. And it's now changed its name to, I think, Animal Free Research. But it was already funding research into HIV using non-animal models. And one of the projects that it funded, I think for a derisory sum of only £20,000, I think it was, based at St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington in London, was to look at the way in which HIV locks on to human cells and to try and intercept that process. The research did discover how HIV locks onto human cells. I think perhaps not in every case, but in many cases. And that knowledge was the basis in which protease inhibitors and other anti-HIV drugs were developed using that knowledge about how the lock-on mechanism takes place and how it, how it works so yeah. but this to me was a very strong evidence that animal-based research was flawed and that you would get similar results better results yeah. more effective and reliable results using human human-based
0: research one of my previous guests dr aisha akhtar you know that's now her life's work is making that case not just because of the animal ethics but because it's better for human medicine and science as well. But I wanted to yeah, come back. It is morally and ethically right and yeah. good science. It's a Best win-win. Science. right? It's a win-win. Just like ending animal farming is a win-win too. <laughs> but I wanted to come back briefly to the point you made earlier on about, as you said, it's deeply contentious to draw parallels between forms of oppression of humans and forms of oppressions of non-humans, and I can understand why because some of the things that you talked about—they are visceral, horrific. Seismic events that have deep significance to many people around the world. So it almost feels taboo to link them in any way to other problems or link them in any way, particularly to problems in the non human species. But at the same time, it's difficult because if we're trying to engage with people who instinctively only seem to care about humans, how else can we explain the horrors of animal farming and exploitation without drawing? Some limited parallels. These are different forms of oppression. They they have deep, r- radical differences, but there are elements and commonalities. Oppressing an animal does have some commonality with oppressing a human. Violence towards a non-human has some commonality with violence towards a human. So I do think we need to find a way of respecting the resonance and the importance of some of these events and these horrors, but at the same time recognizing appropriately where there are parallels. And I think that's partly because. In human ethics, one of the central things for me is being able to put yourself in the perspective of another person. That's why I might care about you, because I can imagine imperfectly what it's like to be Peter Tatchell. So I can have some compassion because I can get that sense. And that's exactly what we do for non-human animals too. And as you say, the frustration is that you know, most humans will do that for some non-human animals, you know, if they have a companion animal, like the crazy puppy behind me that's nipping my heels. Um, Instinctively, intuitively, and intellectually, people will know that it's something feels like something to be that puppy and to hurt it needlessly for pleasure would be crazy. but for some reason, because of these social norms, we struggle to think that way clearly about for example, farmed animals or, or animals in the world as well. so it's a really interesting challenge about how to respect the significance of you know human ethics, but at the same time help people understand that we're we're animals too. Non-human animals also suffer. That suffering matters, and to try and find a way of doing that. But yeah,
1: tricky. Yeah, I, I think, as you say, being able to put oneself in a situation of another, to imagine how we would personally feel if we were in the situation, that is crucial to, I think, extending our moral ethical horizons beyond human beings to other. Sentient creatures. Yeah. And when I see examples of animal abuse, whether it be in, in farming or circuses or zoos or scientific laboratory experiments, or indeed just everyday cruelty of someone mistreating their dog or cat, I just think to myself, this is a, a being that has feelings that can feel pain. Yeah. That can also feel. Pleasure, or or satisfaction, or you know enjoyment. I don't want to project you know human emotions and feelings onto other animal species, but in broad terms, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm trying to say.
0: And and I'd also say that while there are there are clearly differences between us and all the different species, and there are certain types of interests and needs that we might have as humans that other non-human animals might not have, but it seems like the most fundamental and the most important to us physical pains and pleasures sustenance, shelter, food and water, in the right to be able to continue living, wanting family and friends and companionship. I think all of the most important human interests are those that are most richly shared across the other species too. And that should, again, help us to span that boundary. And I do find it deeply frustrating, again, because of those social norms, that even thoughtful, compassionate, for example, humanist leaders seem to have a completely different way of applying ethics for the human species than they do for non-human ethics and and I can appreciate we should vary our thinking where interests and needs dif- differ but we shouldn't have a completely different type of ethics for humans and non-humans and that's why I think you the the piece you wrote about imagining what it would be like to, for humans to be farmed forces you into that thought experiment because you have to say if this is acceptable you say this is high welfare you say this is humane you say this practice of farming is justified by our preferences why wouldn't that apply to humans too and i think that does help cut through some of the social norms and more and more people are are recognizing that every day
1: to me this is you know an ongoing part of the process of the evolution of human ethics and morality with the first humans rights or respect or compassion revolved around you know the immediate family. And then perhaps was extended to clan or even the tribe, and then beyond that to a whole geographical region. Then later, of course, to concepts of nation, national identity, uh, racial identity, and so on. So, going to the stage of then the universal human rights, that was the big leap. Yeah. But now we're at this stage where we need to make the next leap, which is to all sentient beings to expand our moral horizons. And this to me is just totally logical as well as being very necessary and right.
0: And that's partly why I'm suggesting sentientism is almost like the next stage beyond humanism. It's where we should go next because it balances out, counters this sort of anthropocentrism you can sometimes feel in humanism. Most humanists I don't think are totally focused on the human species, but it's still there as a very strong cultural default. And I'm hoping this idea of sentientism will help people break through that a little bit and think all suffering matters. Why should we exclude any being capable of suffering from moral consideration? That doesn't solve all of the problems. It doesn't help us fix really difficult ethical trade-offs, but at least it helps us recognize that all of these entities warrant serious moral consideration. And it does help us pinpoint some really obvious win-wins where we're needlessly causing harm and suffering. And the only justification for doing that is because we've excluded those beings from Ethical consideration whatsoever. So yeah, I, I agree. I think it is almost a naturalistic development of our ethics to recognize, uh, you know, broader moral moral scope. I, I, I want to try and wrap up on the final question, which is: given everything we've said, how do you think about the future? Because I think you and I share a naturalistic way of understanding the world. I think we share a sentiocentric moral scope, and we recognize all sentient beings matter morally. But nearly everybody on the planet still disagrees with us, either because they have a supernatural way of thinking or they have an ethical system that privileges or discriminates even within the human species, and certainly across other sentient species as well. So in that strange context where you and I might feel like we've got technically quite a solid, obvious answer, but nearly everybody else disagrees, how do you think about the future? And there was a beautiful quote that closed your Netflix film, Hating Peter Tatchell, where I think you said, don't accept the world as it is, dream of what the world could be, and then make it happen. How would you describe that sort of utopian view where you know, if all of your campaigns win and our drive for extending the moral scope is successful, what could that utopian future look like?
1: I don't think any of us can really crystal ball gaze the future. We can know what we may want and be very certain about that, but how it actually evolves, that, that, that is something that basically future generations will decide. History can go forward and backward. Overall, as Martin Luther King um, said, the arc of history is towards justice. There have been some awful reversions. You think of of Nazism. Germany, one of the great world cultures, descended into the barbarism of Nazism. It would have probably seemed impossible to people in 1900, but that's what happened less than half a century later. And so I, I don't see, sadly, I don't see the evolution of our ethics as being a, a unilinear process. I can't imagine us going backwards. I can't imagine us staying stationary either, but who can, who could, who can tell? Yeah. And of course, the only way to progress ethics is by educating, informing, and campaigning. Over the generations, the, the ideas of women's suffrage, of racial equality, of LGBT plus freedom, They came about because people, often very brave, inspiring pioneers, put those ideas out there at a time in an era when they were deeply unpopular and not accepted. But they and their successors continued those campaigns and moved us towards the the broad acceptance of those basic values, at least in, in most Western countries, in terms of sentience we have a long way to go the the long way to go is not a reason not to try and i'm confident that in the long run it, it will win out that it will become the consensus the norm the common sense view but that may take many generations hopefully not too many but on a global scale probably many generations and there may be certain events or triggers that suddenly push it forward like with me with the aids pandemic it pushed forward my resolve to campaign harder and strong more strongly against animal research because i could see that how it was actually undermining the finding of of an effective um treatment cure i think that you're right that humanism is on the right track humanism is going in the right direction and i'm still proud to call myself a humanist yeah but as you say, we need to extend that. And we need to have those debates within humanism. And, and maybe there will come a point when humanism ceases to be, that humanism evolved into sentientism. And I would like to see that. I'd like to be a part of the process to help make that happen. But it, it's a bit like looking back at views of human rights that did not acknowledge the human rights of LGBT plus people. It took a battle to put LGBT plus rights within the human rights framework and to secure acceptance. And even today, in many countries, there is still no acceptance.
0: Yeah. So, long, many so far to go.
1: Yeah, but in many countries and many cultures, that acceptance is there or is in the process of being one. So I think the same with sentientism It will be a long process, but you and others beginning it, you know, you are trailblazing it, you are making the case. And I think the more people hear about it, the more people who will be convinced that morally and ethically, it is the right way to go. And that current views that limit rights and freedoms to human beings is a very limited moral ethical framework.
0: Well, thank you. I think so many people who know your work as a relentless, driving sort of uber activist for all forms of different. Universal human rights. I think it's so powerful to have someone with your reputation and your characteristics and, and your drive and your commitment to be very explicit about extending that compassion out into the sphere of non human sentience as well. So, thank you for being a small part of you know, normalizing that shift, which I think will come. And as you say, I think you've, you give people an enormous amount of hope because while any social change feels painfully slow while you're in it, when you look back, It is heartening how quickly things can change if people push and drive and are are willing to take risks. And you've been an inspirational, legendary leader in doing just that in the human sphere.
1: I am a small cog. (laughs) In in many senses, we're all small cogs, but it takes many small cogs to make a great machine. If I can use that kind of analogy. And another one I often use is it takes many small streams and rivers to make a giant water force like the Amazon or the Nile. Yeah. We all the small streams that that make make the giant river. Yeah. So yeah, let's all do our own bit and let's you know work together and collectively and cumulatively we will make the change. There's no doubt about that in my mind. You know, yeah. reason, compassion, love. These are unstoppable forces of history. And I suppose if I was asked to summarise what motivates me, it is sounds corny, but it is love—a love for other human beings, and for other sentient creatures who suffer. I do not like to see suffering. I want to see a fair deal, respect and dignity for all living things. And if we all had that mind frame, perhaps expressed more articulately by others, but if we had that that, that simple concept, that simple idea, then we would be moving mountains and, and moving society forward in in a much better direction.
0: Well, that's inspiring words to finish on. Thank you so much. What's the best way of people following you and supporting your foundation and finding your work? Uh, and i to include uh, links in the notes, of course, so don't worry yeah. too much about the URLs. And the-
1: my foundation's website is petertachofoundation.org. But since we are a charity based on human rights, that does not include animal rights, although we're not against it. But on my personal website, PeterTatchell.net. you'll find some of my writings around animal rights because i'm not constrained by the the charity rules and charity course, framework
0: human beings are sentient too so uh, yeah this Absolutely. isn't this isn't about just Absolutely. non-human Absolutely. sentience it's recognized it has deep implications for uh, human beings too so yeah.
1: and if people are interested on my foundation's website in the top right hand corner there's a button which says join us if you give us your email address we will send you a weekly and uh, on human rights issues, some on LGBT issues, some on other non-LGBT issues, mostly quite serious, but some funny quirky ones as well to give you a bit of a laugh, and it's totally free, there's no charge.
0: That's wonderful. Well, Peter, it's been an honour to talk to you. You continue to be an inspiration for many millions of people around the world, so thank you for joining Sentientist Conversations today.
1: And thank you for the work you do. I'm really grateful. Uh, You're doing really important work. So thank you, Jamie. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more, and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?